Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Michael Fakhry, co-host of the Law Channel. Today, we'll be talking to Taisu Zhang, uh, who is an associate professor at Yale Law School. I'll be talking to Taisu today about his new book, The Laws and Economics of Confucianism, Kinship and Property in Pre-Industrial China and England, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. Taisu Zheng, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, sure. So I'm a Chinese native. Um, I was born in Tianjin, which is like an hour south of Beijing. And I grew up, I, I spent most of my childhood in Beijing, with the exception of five years that I spent in Buffalo, um, while my dad was getting his PhD in philosophy. Um, then I yeah, so after high school in China, I came back to the U.S. Um, for college, and I've largely been in New Haven ever since. Um, I did my college degree, law degree, and PhD uh, all at Yale, and then I spent two years teaching at Duke before coming back to Yale to join the faculty. Uh, this is my first book, and so my my general academic interest. So, I mean, the entire reason that I became an academic in the first place was I had a kind of deep interest to begin with in this kind of like broad strokes history of modern China. And especially if you see that broad strokes history as more or less the decline and fall of kind of like the Confucian system that gave way to communism, to a brief Republican government, and then to this kind of like semi-communist, semi-crony capitalism thing that we actually have today. Uh, and so while I was pursuing that kind of routine, this was all the way back in college, you know, the, the overwhelming, the, the first thing that strikes, that, that strikes you when you read this history is how much it was driven by economic factors. So, you know, like, the fundamental underlying factor of the entirety of modern Chinese history is more or less China's kind of relative economic decline vis-a-vis vis Western Europe and especially vis-a-vis -vis England in the kind of 18th and early 19th centuries, and so that so so you know that captured my attention in a way that the other kind of like social factors, intellectual factors didn't quite immediately capture. And once I started going deeper into kind of legal academia through law school and the PhD. Uh, it became apparent that what I fundamentally wanted to do was to essentially kind of pursue a legal inquiry of this relative decline. Uh, hence, you know, this body of literature, as it's known to historians, is usually called something either the Sino-Western divergence debate, or as some people call it, the Great Divergence debate, because until the West rose, China roughly was the dominant power in the world, if you could call it that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so you know, the 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 replacement of China by Western Europe as the dominant global power in the seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth centuries was pretty much you know, this is the the single most important kind of global event uh, that's that, that that's actually shaped the modern world more or less. And so, I wanted to explore possible institutional causes of these of, of these developments. And but, but you know, like, more importantly, as I as I went into the book, I discovered in like uh, the, the natural way to kind of engage this debate through a legal lens is through various kinds of institutional economics. Um, and this goes all the way back to Douglas North and even earlier to, if you, if you go all the way back, you can kind of think of Max Weber as in some ways one of the first institutional economists, although Weber was a lot more subtle 
um, then the economist actually came afterwards. But there, mm-hmm. there's this large and very long, um, very almost kind of like ancient academic academic literature that in many ways blames parts of China's relative decline vis-a-vis Western Europe on certain facets of Chinese law. And for me, this was never terribly satisfactory, especially the the way the, that kind of like the new institutional economics is set up uh, to discuss these things. Because in many ways, right, the problem was that the institutions themselves don't just pop out of nowhere. They, they have to be made. And the question fundamentally is, you know, if these institutions had these serious economic problems, and especially you know, after 1830, after 1840, it was painfully apparent to virtually everybody in China, all the elites were paying attention, that their economy was not growing nearly as well as it should in this competitive global atmosphere, and they, they were suffering, that they were suffering considerably geopolitically because of the kind of lagging economy. Um, you know, if, if, if it were true that these legal institutions were problematic and they were partially to blame, why did they stick with them? Mm-hmm. And in many ways, like what was the rationale for having these arguably kind of long-term macroeconomically inefficient institutions in the first place? Uh, and hence, you know, this is the kind of the primary inquiry and the primary curiosity that's actually shaped this book, which is an attempt to kind of it it it, it follows most most kinds of kind of conventional institutional economics. And eventually making a link between legal institutions and certain kinds of economic outcomes. But then it tries to go further than that. And this is where, in many ways, I'm, despite the fact that I don't agree much with Weber's characterization of Chinese history or Chinese law or Chinese bureaucracy or anything, um, I, I, I am kind of methodologically speaking a kind of like pseudo or neo Weberian. In the sense that I really believe that the institutional foundations had social and cultural origins. And so the book is basically an attempt to use law as kind of like a bridge um, between these really deep social conditions and some of the kind of the more important economic outcomes that were part of this entire Sino European economic emergence. I mean, what a wonderful global overview, both in terms of geography. And and just in terms of the intellectual endeavor that you took on, so now I want to turn to more the specifics of the books, and I just want to turn to the you know what you are actually comparing in the book. So first, just in terms of time and space, so you're looking at China from 1860 to 1949, comparing it to early modern England, fifteen roughly 1500 to 1700. So I just want to ask you, how is it and why is it that you're comparing these two specific places, but across different time periods? And what is it that you're looking at? What is it within, what are the particular institutions that you are comparing uh, between these places right. and times? Right. So, so in, in many ways, right, the, the choice of, you're, you're exactly right, the choice of time is not exactly the common conventional choice of time. Um, that most historians who work in this field actually make. Most commonly, the the point is the, the the entire point is to explain the divergence, and therefore, usually, your focus is on pretty much like the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. And at the same time, you want to kind of look at both societies in the same time frame, and therefore, to make the argument that one developed faster than the other at at, at these times because of certain kinds of reasons. Um, the reason why I did this was. Well, in many ways, the, the, this kind of reflects the fact that the, this is like a junior scholar's first book. Mm-hmm. So I was more concerned with kind of 
being theoretically clean in the comparison than being historically useful. So in many ways, the way that I frame my book is, you know, clearly means at least in this book, I'm not really going to be able to explain the Great Divergence per se. Um, I, I might have something to say about like why China, after realizing that it was already falling behind in the later 19th century, had such a hard time catching up. Mm-hmm. So, for for example, you know, it, it tried really hard to catch up, but it was an extremely drawn out process, and it, and the Chinese economy didn't really industrialize until pretty much like after 1949 in the communist era. Uh, and so you know, the book has something to say, say about that, but more importantly, what the book really wants to look at are essentially societies that are kind of on the cusp of industrialization, right? So for me to make the comparison in this kind of like more rigorous theoretical fashion, you have to really be comparing societies that have pretty much like most of the kind of, uh, that have most of their core economic characteristics in common. And so what that means is that you know, the, uh, like, you know given that you know, in, in England by this, roughly 1650, the rural countryside was pretty commercialized, pretty market-based. It was mobile, it was, private, it was privatized, and there were you know, basically just sprouts of capitalism sprouting up all over the place. Um, you want to look at China in roughly like a same time span. And you want to look at an era in which there were large amounts of markets um, there was sufficient. There was an extremely robust privatized economy, but also with kind of like a gradual, slow trend towards industrialization and an economy in which, in some ways, um, the possibility of investing in industry was actually there. And so, this actually did, m- might describe China anywhere between like 1700 and 1950. But it's, but it, it probably most accurately describes China in the period after the Taiping Revolution, so like after 1865, when there was a spell of like roughly 60 years in which the rural countryside was not subject to any kind of major warfare. Um, so there was there was peace and stability, but at the same time there was considerable recognition by the elite of Western industrialization. Plus there was an influx of kind of like rudimentary industrial technologies from the West. And so the, the combination of all those factors makes the Chinese economy in this time arguably look more, you know, makes it look more like the English economy around 1700 than at, at, at any other time in China's history. So that's, you know, so, so, so essentially well, like the core goal was to establish kind of like a functional similarity um, between the two comparison sets that could then give rise to more kind of subtle institutional comparisons. Because otherwise, if there are all these other major economic factors that were clearly different, it's very hard to kind of pinpoint institutions or the cultural factors underlying the institutions as any as any explanation for economic differences because there are all kinds of huge factors that you actually can't control for. So it's essentially it's the need to control for certain large economic characteristics that I choose this these eras basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it also there's an ongoing and I don't it's an it's always a a good debate that I hope doesn't resolve, but the tension between well historic you know historians as historians and law folk that use and engage in history and listening to your approaches it highlights the subtle differences between what a legal theoretical comparative study how it might engage with questions of time and space maybe differently than a straightforward historical narrative and it it raises its own dynamics i think 
quite nicely. Exactly, exactly because this book was not purely written just for the historians. It's written as an act, of, as a kind of a, a as a product of comparative law, a comparative kind of legal and economic history. And so, get, you know, it takes perhaps a little bit more seriously than most other history books in this field. Um, the possible objections of legal scholars, economists, and so on and so forth, and hence it, it tries to kind of like construct a kind of a more rigorous theoretical shell around itself, given that it has these audiences in mind. And the strength of a comparative legal approach is you always have to answer the question: Why are you comparing X to Y? Right? That adds to the the, the rigor, I think, behind the study. So now, you know, I want to shift into the specifics. So the, the thing you look at are land transactions, how people buy and sell and lease out and commercialize land and, and more specifically agricultural land in the two different places. So uh, can you tell us just how sales and, and, and transactions happened in China during the era that you look at? Well, so in many ways, they were not that dissimilar from what you would actually recognize as like a modern land transaction, right? So, um, you know, the two sides would come together, they would bargain, they would come to an agreement, they would sign a contract. Uh, the contract, for the most part, was fully legally enforceable in courts, although usually they usually didn't have to come to that. Um, there would be brokers in the form of like middlemen. Um, so essentially, you know, these were kind of like pre-modern, well, early modern Chinese um, real estate agents. Um, very often, they were like highly respected senior members of the community who were there to make sure that both parties had a fair deal, and that the agreement was consensual and that it was made without any cheating or fraud. Uh, so then, once you signed the contract, both parties would have a copy of the contract, and they would proceed basically pretty strictly on the terms of the contract. Um, so like you see in modern economies, you know, the basic options, if you so assume you're in the position of like having a plot of land that you need to exchange for kind of a large sum of cash, um, the options were pretty much similar to what you see in modern economies and certainly very extremely similar to what you found in early modern England. So you could either sell the land outright, that would usually give you the highest return, or if you didn't want to just lose land permanently, but would wanted to kind of have the option of getting the land back, then you could do two things. You could either mortgage it out, in which case you would get a large lump sum that you would have to pay back to get the land back. Or if you were comfortable with like small incremental uh, intakes of cash, you could consider renting it out. <clears throat> um, now, of course, the rents, you know, even with the down payment, it, it brought you much kind of a much smaller lump sum uh, than the mortgage did. So functionally speaking, if you really want a large cash influx, you are limited to kind of considering the option between sales and mortgages. And the way the book starts is basically based on that. You know, if you put yourselves in the shoes of a small small landholder who has some land, but in, in these kinds of early modern economies, not much cash, and imagine that you have a large need for cash, then what are you going to do? And what are the institutional conditions that govern your options, basically? And what was unique about the transactions in China that led to, and one of the arguments you made is the system of land transactions and selling and mortgaging and, and, and all of that led to a system that maintained some uh, element of equality uh, amongst people. And that's where you start sort of, sort of foreshadowing some of the differences. So what was unique about China 
that led it down that different path about the specifics of how these transactions played out in terms of how long they lasted, when people could enforce their rights and that sort of thing. Yeah, so, so um, it's hard to say whether China was completely unique in this fashion, given that you know, like at a very early phase in English history, you actually saw something relatively similar. Um, but the, you know, by the early modern era, like by this like 100 years before industrialization, before industrialization phase that the book focuses on, uh, the core difference between, say, China and England and also between, say, China, Japan, and France, actually like most major economies you can think of, in that context, China was quite unique in that the, the, the single most decisive factor was that if you mortgage land in China, you basically had no deadline for redemption. You could always buy your land back no matter how much time had passed. And all you had to do was repay the kind of purchaser of your land, the, 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 the creditor who was essentially loaning land to you based on this collateral. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, loaning, lending money to you based on this collateral. All you had to do was give him back the original price he gave you. So there was no interest. Um, you could have like an unlimited amount of time to actually redeem. And so from the perspective of the smallholder, and you know, this is where the pre-industrial nature of these economies really starts to matter. Um, you know, at this time, off-farm employment opportunities were relatively limited um, in both societies, um, both in England and in China, actually, frankly, everywhere else in the world. So land was arguably the single most important source, not merely of capital, but also of livelihood. If you'd lost your land, you would have to work as a kind of a farm hand on somebody else's land. And whereas you know that that was okay, and you could make a living off of that, that was nowhere near as secure, and actually was not quite as lucrative as having your own land. And also, your know, land was something that you can kind of pass on to your descendants as like a permanent source of source of uh, employment and and production and food mm-hmm. for an entire family from generation to generation. So essentially, right you now, assuming no assuming no discounting of the future. And especially if you're in kind of like a family-oriented um, kind of agricultural society, the dis- you know, discounting of the future was much less than what we actually tend to see in modern economies. But if there was no discounting of the future, then theoretically the economic value of any single piece of land was just virtually unlimited. Because the, you know, that would guarantee for generations on that you could you would at least not starve to death. So you know, given those circumstances, like one of the first questions you have to ask is why do people want to sell land in the first place? And it turns out that they only really ever want to sell land when they can't avoid it, um, when they're like facing major debts that are coming due, when they have to have when they're forced to spend major sums of cash, like funerals, weddings, like major social obligations to spend large amounts of cash doing certain performance or rituals for the community. Uh, it's only when you're faced with those kinds of like extremely pressing circumstances that you actually can't get out of. That you would ever even consider selling some of your land, so that you would have to fall into considerable economic hardship to even consider selling your land. Now, what this usually meant was that, given the usually kind of unfortuitous conditions in which you were selling, you were, you were making the choice between mortgaging and selling. And given the fact that you know, land was pretty much the only source of livelihood you could guarantee your descendants, virtually everybody wanted to buy their land back. Mm-hmm. Like no one wanted to entertain the idea of losing the land permanently. It was always like you know, as long as I could, as much as I can help, I want the land back. And this was common for both Chinese, English, Japanese, French smallholders. If you, if you survey the, the, the agricultural history of these, these early modern economies, every, in every single country, the smallholders express an extremely strong desire to 
to kind of have more lenient redemption conditions after they, they, they mortgage out their land. Now, the thing is, only in China do they basically win the battle. And they win the battle in such a decisive way that it actually makes it virtually impossible um, for most large landlords in China to actually permanently buy land. Well, not quite impossible. At least it makes it extremely mm-hmm. hard for most large landowners to actually per- permanently buy land because, I mean, like if all the 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 debtor has to do to get its land back is to repay you the the original price at any point in the future. Like there was no thirty-year, ten-year, five-year, one-year deadline after which the guy wasn't allowed to re- to redeem anymore. <laughs> um, then. Basically, you know, like unless something freakish happens, like you know, some the the the, the lands the mortgager wants to move, or he, his entire family is wiped out, or something like that, uh, it was just it was just extremely hard for you to actually just just permanently get a piece of land. And the most you could do was you could invest your cash and land in the following fashion, which is you could make like a series of these mortgages, under which the conditions were that you know you actually took over the land. And you could farm it for free, but like the moment the guy wants to redeem, you actually have to give it back to him. So instead of the like most other kind of like early modern landlords, they could use a mortgage as, as kind of like a stepping stone to a permanent transaction. And once the poor guy defaulted, you would just get the land for free. Um, instead, what they basically had to do was there was never really much of a possibility of defaults. In the Chinese case, and all they could do was throw their cash into like a continuous sequence of these kinds of what we call conditional sales. But functionally speaking, they were pretty much the same thing as mortgages. Mm-hmm. So it was an extremely favorable thing for smallholders, and it was quite economically detrimental to the interests of these larger landowners who have some cash but actually want to turn that cash into land because land was the best investment they could find. And it was you know th- th- those incentives were broadly similar whether across Chinese or English. Um, or, or English societies, and the the big difference is, you know, despite the fact that you know, like in both countries, rich landowners had pretty much the same incentives, poor landowners had different but also kind of like similar incentives. So, so you know, Chinese smallholders and English smallholders had pretty much the same incentives, and both sides fought over what the rules actually should be. It turns out that in China, the poor guys actually win. Whereas in most of the other parts of the world, the rich guys were. Right. And when you're saying in terms of unlimited time, it sounded there were some instances where that would pass from one generation to the next. So if my father sold our land for a certain amount, is this right that I could then call it in and, and pay back whoever bought it or their descendants? And so it was intergenerate. It truly was infinite then. Is that right? Oh yes, uh, yeah. The 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 longest example that I saw. So 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 for the like while reading the book, I, I collected something roughly in the in the neighborhood of like a thousand contracts um, from these two regions in China that I studied. And the longest case that I saw, looking at both contracts and also like um, litigation documents, was there was a case in which somebody tried to redeem land after like ninety five years, and and of course like the the the. The creditor, who, the creditor family, who was now in their like fourth generation, who was holding that was just furious because the land had been with the family for like almost a century, and they sued. And in the end, the court basically just didn't want to resolve this kind of thorny issue because the courts were quite weak, um, or at least they didn't have much enforcement power. So they punted the punted the issue back to communal mediation. And like apparently, the result of communal mediation was the poor guy actually just actually redeemed his land after nearly a century. 
So now let's move to England and the mortgages in England. So how how did people buy and sell and exchange land in England in the early modern era? So again, it was quite similar to the Chinese setup, right? So you had basically two options if you were in the same situation, where you could either sell your land or you could mortgage it. But unlike in the Chinese case, in which if you mortgage your land, you would bear very little chance or very little risk of losing the land permanently. Um, in the English case, that was an extremely likely outcome. Um, if like once you mortgage your land, chances are you would never actually see your land again. And the reason for this was actually that you know the the, the norm in England actually was that there was like a sweeping social general social norm, um, general kind of like not quite social norm, but it was like a customary law that the vast majority of contracts specify that you had to redeem within one year. And if you didn't redeem within one year, the moment that you defaulted upon your debt, you would lose the land permanently, without without any any further compensation by the by the uh, by the creditor. Now the chances are, if you're you're already in such a tough circumstance, you actually have to mortgage land in the first place. Uh, the likelihood of your financial circumstance recovering enough so that you can redeem within one year, especially if you're a smallholder, is just real is is, is virtually kind of like just microscopically mm. small. So the great majority of English of these kind of like one-year mortgages turned just into permanent transactions, where you, where the where the smallholders defaulted after a year, and the rich guy essentially kind of got the land at, at a discount because the initial loan usually was not quite up to the full value of the land. Now, if that's the most likely outcome, right, for the smallholder, then frankly speaking, you're actually better off just selling it permanently because you're likely going to be screwed even more if you. Mm-hmm. Mortgage it. So you know, why why risk losing your land at a kind of like a suboptimal price just for like a five percent chance of actually redeeming it in one year? So this is why if you look at like the these the structure of like English contract archives, the great majority of these transactions are actually permanent sales, whereas mortgages were like a small minority because mortgages were just fundamentally unfavorable to the guys actually selling the land. Whereas in the Chinese case, the mortgages were so favorable to the smallholders that like 95% of most most contract archives are mortgages rather than land sales. And so now to, I think what I read as the heart of your story is, and it sounds like the way I read it is, the reason the smallholders won in China is culture, cultural values played a very significant part. And that, I think, is one of the more unique contributions of your book to all the different areas that you're engaged with. And more specifically, you focus on what you call Confucian kinship hierarchies. So could you explain what this means and how this affected the land transactions in China? So that's, thanks. Um, that's exactly right. So, so, so fundamentally, the core explanatory factor of the book is these kind of like Confucian kinship hierarchies, which I then argue in a later chapter were fundamentally cultural um, in nature. And so, the thing is, if you look at um, you know the way that Chinese society was organized, vis-a-vis like the way that English rural society was organized. Um, so, you know, like the common, the conventional wisdom of the English countryside is that not that families didn't matter much, but at least by, especially after the Black Death, um, the the fundamental determinants of status of power in the English countryside was wealth, and this is something that's going to seem very familiar to modern audiences. It was essentially, the English countryside was kind of capitalist, and that the more landed capital you you held, um, the more of a high status 
high power person you were in the countryside. So you know the, the precondition for becoming you know, a JP or an MP in the English countryside, frankly, was having lots of landed wealth. And sometimes it wasn't sufficient because you had to have people like you also. But without landed wealth, mm-hmm. everything was off the table. Now, the thing about China was that let, you know, quite the opposite the social norms in most communities expressly basically said that we it's just fundamentally immoral for us to allocate status and authority on the basis of landed wealth. Instead, you know, we're Confucian. And what does Confucian mean? It means that we are essentially gerontocratic, right? Um, the, the most morally proper, proper basis of recognizing status and authority and hierarchy in our society is seniority, right? You have to be of a senior generation and within the same generation, the kind of older guys would win over the younger guys. So all around, it was like a generational and then age-based seniority hierarchy that was recognized as, as the proper Confucian thing to do. And so the way that this matters um, for the arguments advanced in the book are, if you think about the way that gerontocracies actually play out in kind of like a broad macro-level social scale, gerontocracies are, especially when the life expectancy in these early modern societies, the life expectancy of rich households vis-a-vis poor households was not all that different. It meant that if you were a pure gerontocracy, there was a considerable likelihood of some extremely poor families um, actually winning status simply on the basis of their seniority. Whereas this was this was literally a, a pretty pretty much kind of like an institutional possibility mm-hmm. in England. So what that means is not that China was dominated by poor families, but at the very least that you know poor families had some political representation amongst the village elites in rural China, whereas they had virtually none in England. And so, you know, the, the 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 book does all this kind of like accounting of like village elite positions in a number of kind of early modern Chinese um, Chinese villages, and it turns out that you know, like in the villages where we have good data for this, uh, lower income households you know, defined as like below median landholders actually very often occupied something like half the the village leadership positions, like village head, um, lineage chief. Um, village council members and so on and so forth. So the, the village political elite was half poor, and this was com- this would have been completely incomprehensible in England, where all the all the village political elite were really rich guys, basically. And so then the way this plays out is, you know, if you compare two societies in which in one society the the poor had some, you know, not insignificant, not insignificant amount of political power, and a society in which the poor had virtually none. Then you would pretty much expect that you know property institutions or any kind of legal institution in one society would favor the poor's interests more more than they mm-hmm. would in the other society. And here, there's something special about property institutions, and especially like land transaction institutions, that make them uniquely important for the poor. In that, you know, like if you look at the entire scope of property law, right? Um, most things actually, you know, poor guys and rich guys have pretty much the same incentives. Whether you want property, whether you want land, landed property to be secure against governmental intervention, whether you want you know secure rights of exclusion, um, you know, like how much, how many property forms do you want to recognize? If we're talking about things like numerous clauses, so you know most of those things do not necessarily have like a poor mm-hmm. rich dynamic, but. Land transactions were the single most important focal point of poor rich transactions, poor rich fights, 
and conflict when it came to property institutions. And because you know these were the way these were the instruments through which the rich basically could buy land off the poor and kind of further solidify their economic advantage. So, and in these cases, the poor have pretty much the exact opposite incentives as the rich guys do, and especially in things like mortgages and land, and rent and kind of tenancy institutions and land sales. For the poor, this is as close as it comes to kind of like a matter of life or death. Because these are the institutions that, that will determine whether they can keep a hold of their land over the long term, um, or whether they become become landless and become just you know, destitute mm-hmm. and become poor, even poorer than they currently are. So for them, this was like a fundamental interest. Like if we lose on this, we're we're likely going to lose our land. In fact, you know the English landowners, um, the English smallholders did lose their land. Um, from 1500 to 1700, and in 1500, the countryside was roughly like you know, half the land was owned by smallholders, and by 1700, like more, they owned pretty much like less than 10 percent of mm-hmm. the, the entire country's land. So, you know, like, this was the fate that everyone kind of thought was going to happen to any smallholders who lost the fight over these property property doors. Whereas, on the other hand, when you know, the rich guys they cared about these things. But they were they didn't care quite as much because it wasn't it wasn't much of a matter of life or death. Um, even with the unfavorable norms they actually had in the Chinese countryside, you know they could still make mm-hmm. good use of their cash simply simply by kind of like buying out like a series of these these mortgages. Because you know once when you're in a mortgage, um, essentially what you're doing is you're you're taking a lump sum of cash, giving it to the smallholder, getting his land in return, and then farming the land for free. Until it redeems, at which time you get your cash back and you give out, you give back the land. So, you know what they could do was, you know, they could ha- they could take a lump of cash, use it to kind of buy a series of these you know, conditional sales slash mortgages, and then they would basically be able to kind of turn that cash into free usage of agricultural land for a very long period of time, which was you know not quite the optimal way to use their land. The optimal way would have been to be, be able to kind of purchase land outright. But it was at least mm-hmm. a valuable way of using their land and gave them, gave them considerable returns. So even though they lost, even if they lose this battle, they can still reap some returns and make good profits off their cash. Whereas for the poor guys, this, this was a matter of life or death. So if you expect to see the kind of like institutional advantage of Chinese smallholders anywhere in the entire scope of the law, this would be like the one place where you would most expect to see because this was the one place in which the poor guys cared a lot, but the rich guys didn't care so much. So the fact that you know, essentially the, the, the English smallholders couldn't even win on this point really hammers home how weak they were politically. Whereas at least in the Chinese countryside, where the China, the, the, it's not necessarily true that the poor guys won a lot of battles, but they did manage to win the single kind of most important battle for them. But which was also kind of a battle that the rich guys could actually afford to make concessions on. So it sounds like the cultural power of Confucian kinship hierarchies led to a political power, sort of gave the smallholders political power in a way that the 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 rich the rich folk, for lack of a better term, they made a profit, but it didn't lead to institutional transformation or concentration of wealth in the way that it was in England. Yes. Um, so essentially, what basically happens was what happened were that the poor guys just completely lost out in England, and they were destroyed economically. Um, 
at least until the trickle-down effects of industrialization really started to benefit them. This was only in the 19th century. Um, but in the Chinese countryside, the poor managed to keep a hold of their land for a very long time, and you don't see any real trend in the mid to late Qing of any kind of trend towards land accumulation by, by large, rich households. The overall percentage of land being held by, say, like top 10%, of landholders actually stays roughly the same. Um, looking at various points in from like 1750 to 1800 to 1900 to the 1930s, and so the smallholders maintain, um, you know, basically their economic and social and political stature throughout this entire period. Um, but at the same time, this actually is not necessarily a good thing for industrialization. Because you know, one of the reasons why England was able to industrialize so fast actually was that the kind of large, richest, most economically active entrepreneurs in society owned most of the economically valuable assets, which was essentially land at this point. Um, but you know, it, it is so. So you're exactly right. It's kind of like a cultural explanation of an economic outcome um, using this kind of like property institution bridge. And the reason why I insist that it's cultural um, is that, at the very least, the Confucian kinship norms were not plausibly the result of any kind of like rational choice-based or self-interest-based negotiation between fact between you know, between communities. So it's almost impossible to kind of come to kind of construct an economic model in which the nearly the entirety of China. Which is an incredibly economically, socially, and ecologically diverse place, comes to coalesce around pretty much the same kinds of kinship-based hierarchies mm-hmm. in virtually mm-hmm. all parts of China. So you know, it's not that a rational community can't have these kinds of gerontocratic norms. It's that it's virtually impossible for such a vast, vast variety of conditions to produce essentially kind of the same norm if it truly was just a kind of like an equilibrium of rational choice bargaining. Mm-hmm. So instead, it had to have been the product of some level of just kind of like pure norm internalization. Um, people seeing the rule not merely as as useful, or in the poor cases, probably like you know important for their interests and their self interest, uh, but also just fundamentally seeing the norm as right. You know, it, it's it, 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 even the rich guys are fundamentally recognized that whereas you can fight, you, you can debate over. Whether lots of other things, including the property institutions themselves, are morally mandatory, virtually no one disputed the fact that these kinship hierarchies were morally were just like morally not non-negotiable. Yeah. So to turn to those kinship hierarchies, I'd love to hear more about. So it sounds like you give them their own their own history and dynamic. So how did this uh, hierarchy come to be embedded in Chinese society? Right, so actually, so this is where you actually really see the power of kind of like cultural internalization by through kind of a bottom-up process. So, if you know, for most of the Chinese history, the elites, especially like the the central governments, whether it was well, it was in Beijing or Nanjing or anywhere else, was actually usually pretty reluctant to allow lower-ranked families, you know, allow commoner families, to form these large lineages. Um, the notion of kind of like extended ancestor worship was initially thought to be kind of like a ritual, ritualistic privilege of the political elite, and allowing commoners to have the same worship rights and the ability to kind of form the similar large kinship groups was seen as kind of like insulting to the privilege and dignity of these elites. And 
despite the fact that you know throughout most of Chinese history, the government consciously tries to ban extended ancestor worship by by commoners. The commoners keep coming back and doing this. Uh, they, you know, they, they keep coming back and do this um, because and there there are several reasons. Like one reason was in many ways they wanted to kind of emulate what elites were doing and therefore kind of raise their raise their own social status by 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 copying elite practice. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, clearly there was a process in which truly everybody was internalizing these norms as kind of like the most proper way to actually organize a family and to organize local society. So, you know, so the, the, the general kind of really broad strokes history of this kind of, this kind of thing is that, so around, you know, the year 1000, um, Chinese, the Chinese state undergoes like a fundamental transformation from previously what you could probably, probably accurately call kind of like a feudal or at least semi-feudal society in which large aristocratic lords owned extremely large manors um, that kind of dominate the economic scene to a more decentralized, privatized economy in which the aristocracy fell, they were replaced by kind of like a non-aristocratic gentry. And correspondingly, China became kind of like a marketized economy that was private and robust and for a very long time, the richest economy in the entire world. And during this process, it was a process, it was kind of a slow process of the state slowly losing control. Uh, of the rural countryside, because you know the state's own capacity couldn't quite keep up with this new robust market economy, and so it had to farm more and more kind of governance responsibilities out to local communities themselves, and it allowed more and more local communities to self-govern. And local communities took advantage of that to essentially demand more and more kind of like ritualistic ancestor worship rites. And finally, by the Qing, the state caves in and decides to actually promote the the extended worship of ancestors um, by by local lineages and local communities under the theory that you know, that kind of social consolidation, given the fact that it was now seen as just basically impossible um, for the state to kind of completely control the countryside, um, it was very important for them to basically think, okay, you know, now that we've actually lost control, why don't we actually just you know, let the local lineages do their thing? And they finally recognize full ancestor worship rights for local lineages in the Qing. And this was like after 1644. Um, then, so once this is the case, where lineages just kind of explode all across the country, and by 1700, 1750, they are the an absolute dominant mode of social organization in the rural countryside. And at the same time, like you know, when these kinds of like large lineages are proliferating across the rural countryside, everywhere they are organized according to these kind of you know, basic seniority-based Confucian hierarchies. And so to me, right, that has to be a cultural story. Like, you know, the, it had to be a process in which everyone was just fundamentally persuaded that this was the most morally just, socially appropriate way of organizing society. Without that, you just, you, it was simply inconceivable that you could you would see that level of kind of like normative homogeneity across such a vast, diverse society, especially when the the most important centralizing force in the society, i.e., the state, was actually losing power all the time. So I want to sort of end with kind of where we started and just building off of this idea of the Confucian kinship hierarchy, what's interesting is you are reacting against, from what I understood, 
both an Orientalist narrative that has, you know, starting with Weber and still, I think, exists today about cultural norms in China, and the uh, and the stories told within China about how feudalistic and backwards and and you're and, and I mean, the book seems to be taking on multiple audiences and multiple fronts. So. There's that conversation you're having. You're also taking on big theoretical fronts, so discussion of social norms and rational choice theory, which you, you've alluded to several times, and the title. So I want to end with the title of your book is even very playful. So it's Laws and Economics, right? You're, you're, it's a play on law and economics, which is its own discipline, a, a term of art. It has its own debates. And, um, and you, you engage in all these different debates and I think the richness of of the book is it's hard to place you. You you know it's uh, the book stands on its own terms. You're not a partisan to all these you know. And us academics tend to love having little tribes and fiefdoms and the like. So I I, I want to uh, ask you that what audience did you have in mind when writing this book? Who who were you speaking to when when you were writing this book? Right right. Um, so, so like honestly, I I'm the kind of person who I guess like just. Because of my personal characteristics, I love to take on all comers in a debate, and so the book really tries to basically argue that like most so so well the the core the core debate it, it situates itself within um, still is kind of the great divergence debate, which has become more institutionalist in, in recent years, and you know in that debate there are two major sides, one side of which is dominant these days, which is the institutional economics side. And that side doesn't leave much room for culture to play a role in these kinds of in these broad geopolitical processes at all. And so the argument to them is that you're actually underestimating how important these kind of core cultural elements were to the entire story. But at the same time, I don't want to be kind of align myself with the other school, which is this kind of like 19 Early early twentieth early twentieth century nineteen forties nineteen fifties, kind of like a general Orientalist school, which fundamentally thinks that there is something culturally wrong with the Chinese economy, and so instead, what I argue basically is, you know, like whereas most of those guys, and you can trace it all the way back to labor, thought that, that you know there was something fundamentally irrational about Chinese economic behavior. Um, what I what I basically argue is, you know, that's not actually not true. Um, you know, Chinese peasants were as rational. As self-interested as their English counterparts, and as I alluded to earlier, uh, if you if you trace the incentives they had and the behavior they exhibited based on those incentives, it's very hard to distinguish between Chinese smallholders and English smallholders, or rich Chinese landlords and rich Chinese, rich English landlords. But essentially, everyone was as selfish and as aggressive and as much of a bastard to everyone else, everywhere across the entire world. And so, given that. Well, it's not plausible to kind of make this general maybe an argument that like there was there was like a broad swath that you could just call Chinese cultural behavior that made them different from the English in virtually every facet of economic behavior. Instead, what I'm arguing is that you know, most of the time the Chinese people, the Chinese individuals, behave pretty much like their English counterparts. But it was only within like these these this relatively small set of core social norms core social hierarchies in which they fundamentally internalized different norms that led to different kinds of social behavior and modes of social organization. So it's a much narrower and kind of more focused argument than the broad kind of big culture arguments that you usually see. Uh, you, actually, you still sometimes see these arguments being thrown around in sociology or anthropology. Um, 
But for me, culture is a much narrower concept. And that actually has many advantages because it allows the culture to be kind of defined, measured, and associated with certain kinds of institutions. It just kind of makes the concept more useful as an analytical category rather than simply this kind of a Clifford, uh, Clifford Geertz-ish culture is everything kind of like broad argument because if you, t- if you go down that route, the mindset is, is to say that if culture is everything, then at the same time, culture is kind of nothing at the same time. Um, instead, what I'm basically saying is that there's a very narrow set of internalized norms that truly made most of the cultural difference between this, these societies. But the rest of the time, they actually were pretty rational actors that act kind of in, in, in accordance with the basic economic models that institutional economists tend to prefer. So it's like a middle ground between these two things. Um, but I do think it has something to offer to both sides. Um, now, now, vis-a-vis law and, law and economics, and this, this is kind of like the, the separate, f- the other field that I work in sometimes, which is kind of property theory. And, you know, like w- w- uh, in my daily law school duties, I teach property law. And sometimes I write articles. Um, I've recently written one that's, that's going out right now, actually, uh, on property theory. Um, so, so, you know, in that theory, in many ways, like I, I see some of the same debates that I see in this kind of like more general great divergence historiography in that you know, the, the dominant mode of property theory is like this law and economics information cost based um, theory that you associate with people all the way going back to Coase and then to Bob Ellickson and then to Henry Smith more recently. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there are people who would fundamentally deny that, people, that human beings are rational actors at all. And instead, you know, they, they're pluralist, value-drenched beings that fundamentally act according to moral norms and cultural beliefs and so on and so forth. And there's really not much room left in that kind of theory for, culture, for kind of any kind of material rationality. And so I also see myself in that debate um, as being somewhere in the middle, where I want to say that you know, human beings were rational much of the time, especially when it came to thinking about specific norms of property law. Um, but that hardly means that property is not a cultural construct in some fundamental way, because the fundamental social conditions upon which people indulge their selfishness, indulge their material self-interest, actually have a large, deep cultural component that you can only see if you look beyond just the negotiation around property norms and more deeply into kind of like the social preconditions for the negotiations themselves. What a wonderful way, I think, to end the discussion about your book is how you open up. I think this book really opens up the concept of rational as a subject of inquiry. That's a question we have to investigate, not a presumption we make about what is rational. And I think bringing culture into this debate is, I think, the right way to go for sure. And um, so just to end things, can you tell us, so you've already alluded to what you're working on now. So where do you see your work going into the future? Right. Um, so, so I have basically two tracks of work, and I'm probably always going to have two tracks. You know, one track is the legal theory stuff that you almost inevitably have to get embroiled into as a law professor. So, you know, I care about property theory. I care about the general debates within legal theory about human behavior and how do human beings actually make laws and think about laws and so on and so forth. So, there's that kind of like legal theory strand, but perhaps more important than historian. And the number one thing that I care about, the, the overarching goal that I gave myself when I went into academia in the first place, was to kind of understand the great divergence. Um, 
And so I have a series of books that uh, some some being written right now, others being planned for the future, um, that kind of try to present this kind of like cultural but also institutional account of how China and England went on different economic paths, and you know, how China differed also from France, Japan, maybe even the United States at some point. Um, the second book in that, in that series moves from the bottom up to the top down, and you know, so so. China was different from England in many, many aspects, two of which the most important ones, the first one was explored in the first book, which, which is that China was a much more equal society. But the second one was also that China was an extremely kind of low taxation society in which governmental capacity was just extraordinarily mm. weak. Uh, and you know the, the way to kind of to understand this is that if you look at English taxes around 1700 or by 1800, um, the the English state is actually taxing a large share of the yearly kind of pro, pro, production of the economy. So, by rough estimates, you know, the English taxation was probably like twenty percent or fifteen percent of GDP, um, even by eighteen hundred. Um, and it, this grows later on. It, it's actually a large part of the industrialization process. Maybe not so much in England, but you know, you, you look at things like you look at countries like 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 Japan, like Holland, like Germany. Um, you know, you, you look at Prussia in the, in the late 19th century. You know, the state plays a major role in investing in industry, providing cheap capital, um, cheap credits to to industrialists, and that was never a possibility in China because the state was taxing an insanely small amount. So China, arguably, I think, is the single lowest tax regime that you actually find in the early modern world. So to kind of give you like a broad comparison, in Japan, you see the state tax, or just like looking at state taxation levels around 1850. In Japan, you see it hovering around 20%. In England, it's 20%. Um, larger continental states, um, France was 8 to 10%. The U.S. was like 7 to 9%. Um, even the other kind of like large Asian land-based empires, the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, was usually around five, six percent. Um, the Chinese, by some estimates, were less than one wow. percent. That's a significant difference. Uh, yes, and it's a huge difference, and it means that the state basically can't do anything mm-hmm. in terms of investment. All it can really do is like basically pay for military and pay for social, pay for a social order, and that's kind of it, more or less. Um, it, you know, it had some like family relief functions, but it was very limited and getting weaker all the time. And the the the, the really striking thing about the Chinese state is not merely that it was taxed such a low percentage, but the absolute volume of taxation does not increase at all from like 1720 to 1860. And most importantly, the agricultural tax, which is the core component of the, of the tax regime in any kind of like pre-industrial society, does not change at all from 1730 all the way to like 1907, basically. And in the process, the the the, the dynasty is collapsing. The state is getting weaker. They're, the elites are trying to industrialize, but the government doesn't have the money to actually pay for that. So it causes huge problems with the Chinese economy. But never do they even consider the possibility of raising agricultural taxes. And the question the second book asks is why? Because this was frankly a fiscally suicidal thing to do. And there's a deeply interesting kind of like ideological story behind all of this, and that this was certainly not just a kind of rational response to pragmatic circumstances on the ground. Instead, there was like a deeply ideological commitment of a certain specific kind to low taxes that has to be unpacked and explained. 
And so that's the second book. Like the first book, it basically tries to show how core features of the Chinese economy had institutional foundations, i.e. in this case, low taxation. But then it tries to show that you know, the, the underlying reasons for having these institutions was not merely just rational choice, but rather there were core kind of institutional, well, core ideological or cultural commitments that were the product of norm internalization and almost kind of like a semi-moral belief. Well, I really look forward to this book and all your forthcoming work. My guest today was Tai Su Zhang, author of The Laws and Economics of Confucianism, Kinship and Property in Pre-Industrial China and England. Tai Su, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, and it was really a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.